You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good morning. My name is Jace Williams, and if we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. And if I sound tired, it's because I am. Uh, We had such a great weekend. Um, This is such a unique and special event for our church and our community and I am uh, just so, so grateful to be a part of it. Um, I'm a coach's kid. My dad was a, a high school basketball coach for 30 years. And one of the things that uh, was instilled in me was you're only as good as your last player. And we have a deep bench at our church. We have lots of people that have stepped up to help from leaders, uh, most of which uh, have come from within our own church. We have some DBU students that are here uh, this morning with us. We have students, yeah, DBU, yeah, give it up. Uh, but we have some students that have come back uh, to serve our ministry after graduating. We have host homes. We have uh, Dan Bakies, who was here all weekend to help us with sound, and Keegan, and so many people behind the scenes, uh, my wife, all of those things. Man, I am so thankful. We, I can't do this event alone. It's, it's ridiculous to think that I, uh, I mean, I deserve anything other than just, hey, I'm, I get to be the face. Uh, and so uh, I am so grateful for students as well for making this a priority in your life to be here. And thank you to your parents for signing you up because I know you had nothing to do with that. But um, I just want to say lastly, and we'll, we'll look at God's word. Man, I am so thankful to be a part of this church uh, this staff and this community. Uh, this is something that I don't take lightly. This is something that I know is not forever. We're not promised this. This is something that is a gift that I'm meant to steward and, uh, and, and really and use my giftings to serve this body and, uh, and love this community. And so I'm very thankful to be a part of it. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 3. Over the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series through the Gospel of John, uh, and it's hard to recap it all, but um, let me quickly catch you up with the immediate context of John chapter 3. At the beginning of John chapter 3, we meet a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, and he confronts Jesus with a few questions. He's very curious Pharisee. And what Jesus begins to do is he begins to reveal to him the core tenets of the gospel, why Jesus came. And he says to enter the kingdom of God, the means is the new birth, being born again. And this is the means, a new self, new affections, new desires. Paul would say a new creation. And this happens, as Jesus would say, through himself in the spirit. And so what Jesus is essentially giving us in the first half, verses 1 through 15, is he's giving us a teaching on salvation. The means by which we are saved and the future destiny of those who are saved. One commentary says that the entire plan of salvation is laid out for us in the present chapter. From the human problem to the divine solution. One thing 
that it's really helpful to think about this text as you think about the discourse to Nicodemus is this is essentially a sermon to him. This is a teaching to him. And we're going to finish the second half of this. And in the middle is one of the most well-known texts that you probably know. Everybody knows this verse. That This is not a, a secret. When I say John 3.16, you probably know where we're going. But... Maybe one thing that you don't understand if you missed last week is the hinge point in verses 14 and 15. He ends the section that we saw last week by pointing backwards to a story in the book of Numbers. As the people of God uh, were whining and they were wondering, some snakes came up and began to bite them and poison them. And what God instructs Moses to do is he says, lift up a bronze serpent on a pole and have your people gaze upon them. And when they gaze upon them, when their eyes meet the serpent, they will be healed. And what Jesus says to end, he says, listen, that story is about me. I am the son of man that came to heal you from the poison that is sin. And this is the context in which we find John 3.16. Their only hope in numbers was for God to send a deliverer upon a, a pole. And the Son of Man came, sent by the Father, to die a death that we deserved on a tree. And by casting our gaze upon the Son of Man, we're born again. And this is the context we find the next five, six verses that we're going to look at. So let's look in your Bible, beginning in verse 16. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here we come to a very familiar set of words from the Gospel of John. It's one of those verses, especially verse 16, that we are so used to that we can become numb to its truths. For many of us, this might be one of the first verses that you memorized in RAs. Some of you are like, I know a song to that verse. You didn't have to tell me, but it's in the King James, and there's lots of thous and thats and all that stuff. But one of the things that I'm really worried about this morning is that I'm worried that you may tune me out, or more importantly, tune out the spirit that would like to interpret these things a little bit differently this morning. Familiarity can be a dangerous thing. It's like watching a familiar episode of your favorite TV show. Mine's The Office, by the way. And I can put that show on, and I know what's happening. It's very familiar to me, and I can go about my business, right? And this is what may happen in John 3.16. That you hear these things, 
and you tune them out because it's familiar. But here's what I feel I need to do today. When I'm tired, I, I tend to speak pretty frankly, like to the point. And so I'm going to get to the point pretty early because I think I, rem- I need to remind you of one of the most basic truths of Christianity that is often the most distorted. I'm going to say it in three ways. God is love. God loves you. And the love of God is not dependent upon anything. I don't think anyone is shocked by that statement. I don't think anyone would maybe take up a debate upon that statement. If I took a poll, most Christians would agree that God is love. But let me ask you this. Do you believe this morning, church, that God likes you? Well, let me explain what I mean by that. There was an older gentleman at our church when I first got into ministry, just got married, and he came up to me. He's, he's a pretty bold guy, and he said, hey, let me give you some marriage advice. And I was like, this is going to be good. I can tell already. And he said, hey, listen, I have never doubted that my wife has loved me, but I don't think most days she likes me. And I was like, yeah, I could probably see that. <laughs> But there's something different about the word love and the word like, right? Like even the word like, when I said it to you, it comes off the tongue a little bit different. It hits you different because love carries with it a sense of responsibility, a sense of obligation, carries deep emotion. But like is a little bit lighter, right? I like fajitas. I like the Dallas Mavericks. There's no obligation to that. It's what I delight in. And I think when it gets down to it, we need to distinguish between these two words because like can remind us of an aspect of God's love that we can forget far too easily. Because here, to use this old man's analogy that gave me for marriage, what I'm going to try to tell you this morning is that God loves you and likes you. God loves you and likes you. And you may be wondering why that matters. But let me just say, to to begin to realize that God is not actually just putting up with you, but delights in you as his creature and desires restoration and fellowship, it changes the way that you view God and yourself. Because the first thing we see in this text, in John 3, 16, is that for God so loved. Loved what? The world. Now, again, you've heard those verses before. You've heard this before. But don't miss it. The motivating factor behind God's rescue mission is delight and love for his creatures. Too often, we are presented with this idea of kind of two gods in the Bible. The Old Testament God is this wrathful father, this father that's easily offended, furious perfectionist, who's kind of only persuaded by this love of the son that says, please forgive them, father. And when we begin to link the father with wrath and the son with love, 
we end up with this distorted figure that's more made in our image than the scriptures. We have this distorted conception of what the Trinity is. And so when we think about this question, like why would Jesus say in verse 15 that I, the Son of Man, have to come and be publicly executed? He answers in verse 16, for God so loved the world. Have you ever wondered what the Trinity was doing before the foundations of the world? Ever wondered that question? It tells us in John 17 that before the foundations of the world, there was a perfect unity of love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It says, before the foundations, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, for the foundations of the world existed, you were loving me in John 17, 24. And so when God seeks to create, he creates out of love. He doesn't create out of loneliness. He's not creating so he can manipulate. He's creating because he's a loving father. And what is the object of his creation? The world. This is the word cosmos. This is the object of his love in which the world is created. It is out of his delight and love for his creatures that he sent his son. And this can be distorted in which ways we understand the gospel. Sinclair Ferguson makes this pretty clear in his book, The Whole Christ. Because sometimes we hear this gospel message, maybe in an explicit way or implicit way, that declares that the reason God loves you is because Jesus died for you. But remember, one of the truths that I just gave you The love of God is not dependent upon anything. Love is who he is at his core. So a more accurate way of understanding this, it is because God loves you that Christ died for you. And understand the gravity of those two different statements. When we make the love of God dependent upon anything, We are robbing his character. Kelly Capic, a writer, says this. He says, the gifts of the Son and the Spirit are not what secure the Father's love for us, but are the fruit of his love for us. So how do we know? How can I explain to you? How can I declare to you this morning that God delights in you and loves you? John 3, 16, he gave his only son. He did everything necessary to reconcile you to himself. Out of this love, the core, the center of the gospel derives from this, that God is love. He delights in his creation so much so that he gave his son, making reconciliation possible. And the text does not say that God loves you now that you've been made his children. It says that God loves you past tense before you were saved. God is the one who acts first in salvation. God is the one who loves first. And the Apostle John would riff off this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And he says, we love because why? He first loved us. And so when we begin 
kind of shooting out of this canon in John 3.16, we understand that this is the greatest subject ever. This is the greatest extent ever. This is the greatest affection ever. This is the greatest object ever. This is the greatest gift ever. The greatest opportunity ever. The greatest commitment ever. The greatest rescuer ever. And the greatest promise ever. And this is the foundation for what he's about to explain for the rest of the passage. Because here in verse 17, he shifts. Because we could end here and be like, let's go float on a cloud on God's love and let's go love everybody, right? Sounds really great. But verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21 exist. Because notice something about the tension that you may feel when I talk about God's love. Like, isn't God holy? Isn't God righteous? Does, isn't he wrathful as well? What do we do with sin? See, notice what John says here. In verses 17 and 18, he says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Jesus is not sent into a neutral world. Meaning the world, in its rebellion, is rebelling against its creator, And is already guilty. Jesus doesn't have to do the condemning. Jesus isn't sit in the world to kind of like just this fact checker like, yep, these people are bad. Uh Uh-huh. He is being sent into a world that is already guilty. One commentator states that he didn't come into the world on a tattling spree, but a rescue mission. And here we understand the mission. We understand the tension because the very fact that God sent Jesus into the world to save us is because he is a God of standards. And to understand God, we don't dissect his attributes. Like God is not loving over here in a silo. He's not uh, omnipotent over here on a silo. He's not um, patient over here. All of his attributes are working together like a beautiful orchestra. And there may be one at the forefront on a solo, but they're all working together. God is love, and he's simultaneously working in all of these attributes because God is holy, because he's righteous, because he is love. He cannot stand sin. But we need not to make God out to be some like a person that's scared of the sight of a spider, right? It's not God that can't be in the presence of sin. It's sin that can't be in the presence of God. And the world is condemned because of God's righteous standard. In the courtroom, they have all the evidence. and You're guilty. And this implies that without Jesus, as Paul would say in Romans 8, that we're still condemned and we're still under the law. And the condemnation is the pronouncement of guilt, that you are guilty. But Jesus' arrival doesn't do that. His arrival is a missionary focus. His arrival is not about declaring you guilty. It's the only way that you'll be declared innocent. And this is what it means to believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation 
the exclusivity of Jesus for salvation, that whoever believes in him is not condemned. And belief is simply this. To believe means that we must acknowledge the claims of Jesus, yield our allegiance to him, and place our trust in him as the only hope of salvation from sin and death. And so God's purpose in sending Jesus was not to condemn the world, but to reconcile the world. God's goal has always been the salvation or wholeness of the world. And that's why we can declare the gospel states that in my place condemned he stood. And this is driven by the love of the Father for his world. But here we are in these last three verses. And John brings up this old analogy from the first chapter, John chapter 1, to continue this theme of condemnation. And a lot of you are like, can you please stop saying that word, condemnation? Well, we're going to get in a worse word, judgment, which is like, you don't say that word either. But this is a side of Christianity that many people don't like. But here we go again. And Jesus goes on to answer a question that you might have. Okay, you just told me, that we're condemned. Why? The NLT would say it this way. What is the basis for judgment? Remember back in John chapter 1. Jesus says, or John says about Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. What has come? The light. The light represents all that is good. And the darkness represents all that is evil. And what has happened is that a rescue has been sent. The light has been clicked on. The light has emerged. But here's the issue that Jesus is getting at. We love our darkness. We love it. It's not just something that is, you know, uh, you know I kind of put up with it. It says that we love our darkness We're content in our darkness. And what condemnation is, what judgment is, is the refusal to walk in the light. This is not a neutral act. This is seeing the light and turning your back. And this is exactly what he's saying to Nicodemus. In 1 John 5, uh, 1, 5 through 7, he says this. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And here's the issue. Here is the issue. Sometimes we are content in our wickedness because coming to the light is going to be really painful. There's things that we, that we wrestle with in isolation. There's sin that dwells in the darkness that's destroying us. And what Satan and the evil one have you to believe is that the light in this exposure is actually really bad for you. But what do we see? We see that this exposure to the light, often painful, is where the love of God dwells. Because what's behind all this? Behind all this is the rescue mission driven from the love of the Father that's seeking to pull you from the darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2 
Verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The light has come in the form of Jesus. And he says, listen, I'm going to take I'm going to take your penalty. I'm going to take your guilty status. But walk in the light. Walk in me. Because the way that Jesus ends this sermon is kind of peculiar. But one thing to remember is the way it began. If you remember at the beginning of chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to him in the cover of night. He came to the light of world under the cover of darkness. And what Jesus does is he lays out one of the most essential pieces of his ministry, that our rebirth in the Spirit is through the means of the Son, brought from the love of the Father. And here is our call. When we walk in the light, we're practicing the light. It's not about this idea of superiority. It's not about earning your salvation. We just went through that with with Nicodemus. It's about reflecting the light in which you have come to. It's about saying that I no longer love the darkness that I was once a part of. And we get to love the light. This is the fellowship piece. This is what we were created to do. We were created to reflect our creator. And the kingdom of God and the world is meant to be filled with people who represent their father. The church, if it operates correctly, is meant to be a signpost, a foretaste, a community who all reflect the light in which we've been called out from the darkness, who have set their gaze upon the bronze snake and said there's no other way to salvation. It is to rest in the rescue mission of the Father born out of his love and like for you. And so here's how I want to end this morning. Um, I believe that there's two groups of people in this room. There are those who do not believe in God's love for them. They're sitting in these chairs, and they don't, it's not a reality. They've done, you say, man, I've done too many things. I've been in the darkness way too long. You don't understand who I am. And that's a sonship issue. You don't know who your father is, okay? That's what that is. But there's a second group of people that are still lovers of darkness, grasping to the pleasures that are here, knowing that an exposure to the light may be painful. And that's a heart issue. And so what I want to do is I want to end with a story. And I'm pretty reluctant to share this story, actually. I was up pretty early this morning, and I was really wrestling whether or not I was going to put this in. Because, you know, the end of a sermon is like kind of like the dismount, you stick it, right? You're like, oh yeah, that was good, let's get out. And I'm not sure this actually logically flows. I mean, I think it does, but here, I could not shake it. I was impressed upon the Holy Spirit. That's all, that's all I know is I think at least one person needs to hear this story. And let me, let me tell you why. About six months ago, I was struggling. I, I was. It was hard. 
There's lots of things going on, just community-wise, our church-wise, personal life, family, just a lot of unknowns. You know those cloudy seasons, right, where you're just like, I don't know what's two feet ahead of me. And there was this, this moment in, um, in that time where prayer seemed dull, Bible reading seemed dull. And I opened this book that I'd had on my shelf for a while, and I was you know, just flipping through it in the beginning of this book. I don't know how else to say it. It just destroyed me. I was on my knees, crying, weeping. And so what I need to do is I need to share this story. This is the first time I've shared this story publicly. It's not my story. It's a story that really wrecked me and brought me to the grips of reality of God's love. And I've, I've done this now three times today, and I have wept three times today. And so I'm, I'm going to tell you the story as best as I can. There's a man who was born to a small Midwestern town with an extreme deformity. And upon seeing him, he was rejected by his mom and dad. Cursed, right? So they hired an immigrant, a young woman, very young, to do what they imagined was just take care of this, this child that we don't want. So this lonely young girl embraced this child as her own. And over the next five years, she raised him. She showered him with love. She looked into his eyes. She touched him tenderly and affirmed him. And from the moment she got him, she sang to him the same refrain dozens of times a day. And as he grew, their connection grew. But early in the 20th century, it made more sense to institutionalize the child than, than pay the girl to, to keep him. So the child tragically was, was pulled away from her, the only person that had ever loved him. And as if losing her own child, the girl grieved. I mean, holding the five-year-old to her chest, she sang the same refrain from the last, for the last time. And she remembered all the times caring for him, sharing the wonders of this person. She was saying goodbye. And the child grew, and he lived a harsh, harsh life, suffered because of the harsh conditions of the asylum, because of his own deformity. And at some point, he was told the name of this young girl who cared for him, but the memory of her was all gone. It was buried underneath suffering and trauma. And when his 18th birthday came around, he had a plan. They couldn't keep him in, in the asylum anymore. He was now at the age to take his destiny in his own hands, so he checked himself out. He walked to the tallest hill that he could find, and he carried a pocket of pills in which he had kept for himself to finally end his misery. And as he sat on the hill, he reminded himself of two things. He was unwanted, and he was unloved. And he shouted at God, why have you hated me? You never cared for me. And that could have been the end. But someone came behind him, and the voice was so clear and so near, and it was singing over and over, God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, dear child, are loved. God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, dear child, are loved. He Over and over he heard it, and he turned around, and no one was there. He was totally alone, but he kept hearing it. 
And in that moment, he knew that he was not alone. And he placed the pills back in his pocket, and he walked away, changed from that mountain. And over the next five decades, this boy would become a pastor, leading others to have their own moments of hearing the voice of God. But still, into his 70s, he could not make sense of the day on that hill. And nearing retirement, but deeply satisfied in who he was and who God was, he got word that the young woman who cared for him was still alive. The only person to show him any ounce of love the first 18 years of his life was alive. You know, he really never tried to reconnect, you know. He didn't really remember her. He was unsure about meeting her, but his wife set up the meeting at their home, and as she arrived, now in her 80s, she was a stranger until their eyes met. And the warmth of her face communicated something that surpassed time and space. It was like he transported to a five-year-old, feeling the love and care and joy and delight of her presence. And they sat together and they reminisced and she held his hand and told him she never felt more important, more called into something beyond herself than to care for him as an infant, to embrace and share in his life. And his memories of torture were now being washed away by the confession of her love for him. And the time was up for her to leave, and she was holding her hand, holding his hand, and her other hand was on, her, on his elbow. And he said, she said, do you remember what I used to sing to you? Quietly, in her beautiful voice, she sang, God's mercy is wide. God's love is deep. And you, dear child, her song that came back to him then. It's clear and as audible as she was singing it right in front of him. Speaking that God had come to him and singing was through her song, the tender music of a scared, lonely girl who had loved him through the beginning of his life that God spoke. It was her song that God used to move him from death into new life. And here's how I think this applies this is a reminder of, for some of you that you have no idea of the impact, the mundane, the consistent, the reflection of God's love to other people. The daily love, consistent, faithful reflection of the light. You have no idea what that's doing to other people. And God will use it because when our works are in him, it says it will be carried out in God. But the second thing you need today is maybe I need to be that voice for you this morning. Maybe you need to hear this morning that God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, dear child, are loved. I don't know that That was affirmation for me, that God will use people to declare his love for them. But guys, God has demonstrated his love for us that while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
For God so loved the world that he gave. God loves you and he likes you. Would you pray with me? Father, I know that there are some that are still wrestling. They're wrestling with the very truth, the evidence in front of them that there is an infinite, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient being that knows the depths of them, knows their brokenness, yet delights in them. They're wrestling with that right now. So, Father, I pray that you would send your spirit to comfort them, to show that you love them and you like them. I pray for those who are in the darkness and enjoying it. But they know that there's more. There, there is more to what they're experiencing. And they know deep down that there's something there that they're longing for that's not being met. So, Father, I pray that you would just do the work in this room that you need to do. If that's reconciliation between two people, let it be. If that is coming out and running into the marvelous light this morning, let it be. If that is people declaring at the top of their lungs they're loved by you, let it be. Father, I just ask that you would keep and be with the students that were part of Dean Out of the Weekend this, this, uh, these past two days. There's a student that has felt convicted over the last two days of what we've been talking about in John 10.10. 10. I pray that this morning would be the day that they understand that they're loved, that they have, a, they have an issue that they can't solve, and you have sent the Son to solve it. So, Father, I just thank you so much who you are and what you have done that we can delight in you because you delight in us that we can worship you with our heart, mind, and soul and we ask this in your holy, holy name Amen Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine For more information about our church visit www.fbcva.com